Hi everyone and welcome to this latest episode of the Brexit and Beyond podcast and I'm delighted to welcome today Chris Gray who's Emeritus Professor of Organisation Studies, we'll figure out what that is later on, at Royal Holloway and also the author of a book I recommend to you very strongly indeed, Brexit Unfolded, which basically tells the story of the Brexit process whilst critiquing it he writes better than I speak in the process. Chris, warm welcome to you. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me on. I mean, there's an awful lot to talk about, not least the fact that we both have picked on the similar name Brexit and Beyond You for your blog and us for our podcast. But I want to start with, with the book itself. The key claim, perhaps, of the book is that Brexit unfolded as it did, and you argue badly, because of the flawed nature of the Brexit project itself. Can you just sort of elucidate on that a little bit? Yeah, even within that, there's sort of two components, because I think that I kind of want to say it was a flawed project in itself, but that even given its flaws, the way in which it was executed kind of exacerbated those flaws. But I suppose, you know, it's, it's not a new observation at, at all, but the, the key kind of flaw, I think, was this was the fact of not specifying what it meant at the level of uh, at the time of the, at the time of the referendum and therefore it became possible for it to mean and it did mean you know all kinds of, of of different and contradictory things and i think that in itself was you know was just inevitably a recipe for a certain kind of disaster because how could it be that it would therefore be impossible for it to be for it to be delivered in a way which was satisfactory and which met all of those contradictory kinds of demands and imaginations but then i think that nested nested within that and this is quite you know quite a strong kind of theme of the book and i and i feel is still a kind of underappreciated point is that is that wrapped into the promises which effectively were that it would be cost-free not not just economically but in all kinds of, of, of other ways but at the economic level i think that wrapped into that was a really persistent misunderstanding about the nature of what a single market is as compared with the trade agreement. And I think that you can mm -hmm. actually kind of trace that right back into the sort of the long history of kind of what we used to call sort of Euroscepticism, where this, this notion, you know, many would say a myth, but this notion sort of developed that, oh, well, we were told that we were just joining a trading bloc. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out to have all these sort of political ramifications. And, and, and all we really want is, is the trading. It was a very transactional kind of view. And, and, and when, as I say, one can question whether, whether it was really sold in that way in the 1970s or not. But the key was the idea that somehow you could, that you could decouple the economic aspects from yeah. the political aspects. And I think that was a, a huge kind of flaw that has now played out in a multitude of different ways. Two things strike me about what you've just said. The first is the fact that I think the UK always failed to understand the political dimension of European integration because there wasn't a political narrative here it was about economics yeah. and I think for all other member states but actually secondly Tory Eurosceptics should have all have read Andrew Gamble's book you know the strong state and the market economy because the two were inseparable I mean that and I think and then I think in, kind of in addition to that I think this goes out of the same kinds of issues this sort of persistent misunderstanding about what non-tariff barriers meant and I think that the, the fundamental kind of difficulty here and again it still continues to to, to go on in, in in relation to all the, the bookends at the end of the transition period but we can still see it now in terms of all of the issues about um, about the Northern Ireland protocol and so on, is this kind of failure to so is this idea about free trade that was really this kind of tariff, you know, absence of tariffs and all of the kind of the non-tariff issues, which are really fundamentally about shared a shared regulatory space. But as soon as you have shared regulation, then you have to have some transnational way 
of both setting and enforcing those regulations, which then automatically comes into conflict with this, or what developed as this very kind of hardline notion about sovereignty. And so, yeah, and immediately you, you talk about a shared regulatory space, you are talking about some form of shared polity. It may take different forms, but it has to have it has to have some form of rule setting and, and rule enforcement. And I think that, and, and so if you if you rule all of that out of court, which was always quite strange because because it was also going alongside the narrative of oh you know let's go go WTO so that somehow there was something kind of neutral about those shared rules and, and not about yeah and not about those of the single market. But as soon as you did that, you were setting yourself on a particularly because of, of being such a service based economy, you were setting yourself on a road to 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 economic difficulty. And, and I think sorry, you know, you go on. Look, I was going to say, I mean, and I, I get that it's a very low bar. But I mean, compared to Theresa May, wouldn't it be fair to say that Boris Johnson and David Frost in particular are slightly more honest about the trade-offs? I mean, only slightly. I mean, it's hinted at in David Frost's speech in Brussels, but at least here it is very clear. This is about politics. We will not be bound by regulations we don't make. And if there's an economic cost, so be it. I I agree with you in a way. There is a a greater degree of clarity about that. But I think it's undermined by... I think that clarity is undermined in, in two ways. I mean, firstly, because it's fine to say that now, but that manifestly wasn't, David Trust wasn't really on the scene, but that manifestly wasn't what Boris Johnson was saying, say, at the time no. of the referendum. No. And even at the time when the TCA, the, the trade deal was, was struck, if you recall, you know, you know, Johnson said, oh, they said it couldn't be done. They said we couldn't have our cake and eat it. And I've shown that we had, and actually said, using these terms, you know, this deal means there will be no non-tariff barriers. And so... Yeah. So I think there's a kind of, you know, I don't know, there's a, there, there might be a version of what they're doing that has a kind of a clarity to it, but it's very much obfuscated by the way that Johnson has, has talked about it. I just, just say to everyone that this is all laid out wonderfully clearly and beautifully written in the book itself. So if you want more, then do get the book. But with, with half an eye on Scotland, there's a bit of a problem here, isn't there, in the sense that, you know, I think the Leave campaign learnt from the experience of the SNP, who published that enormously detailed document about what an independent Scotland would look like, and then had to face two years of their opponents basically forensically tearing yeah. it apart. Isn't the problem when you're trying to win a referendum that fundamental ambiguity is a pretty good campaigning strategy. <laughs> no, I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, it, it's, you can say, you know, it's, it's good tactics, but it's bad strategy. <clears throat> I mean, the issue then became, and, and, and again, I talk about this in various different ways in the book, that, that what was very, you know, arguably very well suited to campaigning became actually, not just in the way that you said, but also as a kind of modus operandi, was extremely ill-suited to governing. And, and, and that actually became clear under sort of Theresa May, when in a sense, you know, I mean, the core thing in a way I try and say in the book is that is that what Theresa May tried to do was to turn these contradictory campaign promises into something that looked like you know, a kind of workable policy. And as, and as soon as she did that, that it was almost... I mean, I dislike inevitability in this context, but it became very likely that the hardcore Brexiters would sort of, would, you know, would, 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 would turn on her. Mm. And when Johnson came to power, I think that that, so if she had tried to kind of take the campaigning stuff and turn it, turn it into government, that he tried to turn government into a campaign and, and a kind of a rolling campaign, which actually, you know, is not, is not just relevant to Brexit, but certainly with respect to kind of Brexit. And so it was always kind of, it was always kind of about that. And we can see that again, in terms of the way that the, you know, in particular, the way that the Northern Ireland Protocol was struck, that it was, it, it seemed to be so you could say, yes, we've done it. And now we can go and we can campaign on it in, in, in the election. But it, but again, it was, if you want to cook, say in a rather kind of cynical way, it was good tactics. But I think it was bad strategy at the level mm. of, yeah. 
you know, the level it, of delivering policy. Is it your view that post-referendum it would have been preferable to negotiate a softer Brexit, maybe a Norway model or something? I mean, once the vote had gone the way it had, what would have been the optimal outcome for you? I mean, that was, and, and, and that I think was, was kind of where I, th I thought it would go, or at least where it should, or where it should go. Let's put it this way. I mean, it would have been enormously difficult because clearly from the day after the referendum, a lot of the people on the, you know, on the hard, hard end of the kind of Brexit sort of spectrum, you know, were saying, despite the fact that they said in the referendum, no, no, it's for the government to decide what it means. We're not the government. Mm. They immediately said, no, this vote was a mandate for a hard Brexit in the meaning the earlier meaning, if you like, the kind of yeah. you know, uh, no single market, no customs union. So it would have been enormously difficult. But I think that, that that those few weeks, really, after Theresa May became prime minister, if if it was possible, that was the moment at which it, it would have been possible. Yeah, and that and, and that the argument would have been to say, I think, firstly, would have been to construct. A process for deciding and she could have said look the, the, the Cameron government you know they totally failed in terms of preparing or making any preparation plans for this and mm -hmm. so I as your new national leader have got to construct a process that would involve the default administrations that would involve kind of people from business trade unions you know different kinds of expertise and so on and I think it would have been very difficult for the kind of ERG people at that point in time when they just put her into power uh, and instead but instead there was just this sort of vacuum really in the kind of the Brexit means Brexit period, mm. which went on for what six months? Would you say you can? I mean, I'm some people actually, would say. Well, I mean, I mean, some people say. I was quite interested in the interview that, that you guys at, at, um, at UK and Changing Europe did with Philip Hammond, where he says, you know, as, as some other people have wanted to say, that really the kind of the October Tory Party conference was, you know, was was the sort of the moment. But she didn't even at that point. She didn't say in terms we're leaving the single market. Yeah. Uh, and she actually around that time actually kind of publicly slapped David Davis down for saying that we were leaving the single market. And there were still people. I mean, there were, there were after after October 2016, there were people like Michael Gove kind of lobbying for hard Brexit. And so it really, I would say, it wasn't until you know, Lancaster House week. So it was six months later. And so that, I think, was the, the, the opportunity that she missed. Yeah, I mean, strikingly, actually, with that Philip Hammond interview, he called that party conference speech essentially a coup against the cabinet. I know, yeah. Striking yeah, term of phrase. Yeah, very strong, yeah. The problem with Brexit is splitting the middle doesn't work, does it? Because for those who genuinely voted to take back control, Norway was actually worse than membership, wasn't it? So how could you square a campaign that had centred around taking back control with an outcome that would have meant you have even less control than you had as a member state. You don't even get a vote. Yeah, and that was, uh, and that was always this kind of the argument that was made against the Norway model. But I mean, I suppose the difficulty then with that is that a lot of people in the referendum campaign were talking either in terms of a model mm -hmm. you know, of, of that kind. And I think that it's it's become somewhat kind of mythologised in a way that, that the Leave campaign was sort of run, OK, there was the take-back control thing, you know, and that was clearly one strand of it, and which was, if you like, the kind of the sovereignty argument. But a lot of the way that they ran that campaign was actually a very kind of bread and butter, you know, and it was obviously there's the 300 million, 350 mm -hmm. million for the NHS. But, but even sort of below that, a lot of those kind of campaign videos were saying, you know, it will be easier for you to get an appointment with your GP, that, you're, uh, that, that you'll have, you know, your housing will be better, NHS, all of those kinds of things. And so I think that, so it's, it's, it's become a myth that it wasn't run as, a, that, that Remain ran an economics campaign yeah. and, and Leave ran a, ran a values campaign. And I think it was nowhere near as straightforward as that. Okay, so if you concede that, that 
that there was an economic, and after all, why rubbish all the project fear projections? If, if it really was, well, we'll pay any price for sovereignty. So then I think that within that, you know, there was the economic case. And actually, I think it founded at that point in time more on freedom of movement of people than budget contribution. I mean, it's well worth reading if you haven't, actually. There's a working paper on our website about why wealthy voters supported Brexit that, proved, that does show, yeah. actually, that there was some cut through to project fear in the sense that the economic arguments made a lot of less well-off people who were profoundly Eurosceptic not vote leave. One of the things you uh, you argue in the book is that basically no one got what they wanted out yeah. of Brexit because they couldn't. Is that necessarily yeah. true of Boris Johnson? He seems to have got pretty much everything he wanted. I think that the, the contradictory nature of those promises was one issue. But I think the other thing, which is which is quite a theme in the book, and it, it's also things that other people have written about, like Fintan O'Toole and so on, that there was also a kind of a certain, for the most committed Brexiters, a certain kind of built-in betrayalism. You know, again, right from day one, you know, the idea, well, we're going to be betrayed. And, and actually that whatever would become up with as being Brexit, that there would always be people, particularly on the kind of the sort of the UKIP end and the Brexit Party end, who would say, no, that's a betrayal of Brexit. That's that's not true Brexit. And some of that is to do with the kind of the contradictory imaginations of what Brexit could be. But I think that there's a powerful kind of political psychology of a certain kind of victimhood in that, of wanting to be, because how, if you have a political narrative, which is about you are the downtrodden victims of the elite and of the establishment, then what Mm. actually happens to that when your policy becomes the winning policy and which is being, you know, enacted by by the government? And I think the only place you can go in terms of political psychology is to say, ah, yes, but they're not really committed to it. And so actually they're secretly doing us down. And and that's, and and so this, so so I think there was, so on the one hand, the incoherent nature of the project made betrayal in that sense likely, and on the other hand, the psychology of victimhood made betrayal a desired state. And yeah. that's a very, very toxic kind of politics. To and as soon as you say that, you then have to say, so why has it been betrayed? And it's that automatically that sets up, on the one hand, the EU as an external punitive bully. But on yeah. the other hand, Remainers, the establishment, the civil service, the judiciary as a kind of internal saboteur saboteur you know well we had that word right and i think it is very much to theresa may's discredit that she played uh, you know i think in some ways she got her a feel but she i think did you know she she didn't use the crush the saboteur's headline and i believe she actually disowned it in an interview but nonetheless the terms in which she announced the 2017 uh, election were very much in terms of saying oh well the country has come together these were her words weren't they the country has come together but but there are still people in in, in westminster you know who are trying to block it of course and she did she the same thing famously in 2019 didn't she on that in that television address which was a, yeah i mean you know and I, when i read the, wrote, wrote the book but, but when i when i when i was writing the book and, and going back through looking at my kind of well, my blog post, for example, of that kind of period. Mm. And I kind of forgotten that. And when I listened to that that speech again that she gave before 2019, it was it was awful. But as I say, there was this terrible irony because she was saying all of these things. And the only people they could appe- they would appeal to were the people who had already disowned her as Theresa the yeah. Remainer. You, you say there was a brief period in 2019 when Brexit could be reversed. 
Yes, I think I say in the introduction that, that you know, my own view from the death of the referendum was that this would happen, except for that brief period, thinking about the period when when the People's Vote campaign, well, we now know how much internal disarray it was in, but nonetheless, when the People's Vote yeah. campaign was putting a lot of people on the street, when I thought, for example, that there was a real possibility that the combination of Theresa, of, if Theresa May would, would soften on it and if Corbyn would support it, there was a real possibility that the kind of some version of Kyle Wilson would happen, which yeah. if you recall was the idea. I mean, we've been through so many weird, you know, weird things, but, but that was that that was the um, the amendment which would say well we will vote for the withdrawal agreement if there's a referendum attached to it uh, to say brexit might have been abandoned i mean one is one is therefore also they're saying a that kyle wilson would have to be passed b that the referendum held would have a stay in the eu option and c that that's what people would have voted for so i'm not saying it that, i'm not saying it was there for yes, the yeah, yeah. just at that moment i think it was kind of possible perhaps was that your preferred normative outcome i think it probably was yes what do you make of the claims that we hear a lot from dominic cummings at the moment that actually that would have completely and utterly undermined faith in politics and politicians you know i think that and i mean actually that was Theresa may's thing all along i mean that yeah. was that was her argument as well it would have had that possibility because of the fact that the very pro-brexit people would have would have said that but i think that the as an intellectual proposition the idea that a democratic vote is undemocratic uh, you know, doesn't really begin to, to, to hold water. And actually, in saying it, that that kind of proposition is is very much, I think, like the way that, you know, the Brexit said, oh, isn't, you know, they shouldn't, about the Miller case, that this was undermining yeah. democracy. In fact, they actually benefited from the Article 50, from there being an Article 50 vote, because they because they effectively tied Parliament and tied the Labour Party, you know, into that decision, yeah. you know, and could always after say, always afterwards say, well, look, you know, you, you know, you voted for this. And again, remember how they 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 absolutely tore into the Amendment Seven rebels. So they were the ones who set up the meaningful vote. Hmm. But then, when the meaningful vote came, boy, yeah. it was the Brexiters who were pleased about that because otherwise, you know, May could have just put through over the Jordanian. And so, actually, you know, if I were a Brexiter, I think that I also would have won and and and, and was an honest Brexiter. I would also have wanted that because that would have, if they had won that second referendum, that would have been the nail in the coffin. But actually, the situation that the Brexiters are in now is they won, fine. But there, I think that the, many of the more thoughtful ones, I believe that they know that that, that victory was tainted and that it, that it was created out of this very flawed referendum campaign, this very kind of narrow kind of victory. And it was not the Brexiters' proposition that we would have a permanently divided society over Europe. Well, permanent, maybe too long, but, you know, a, a society split 50-50 over Brexit. So they had a strategic interest as well in that second referendum. But why would a second referendum be less tainted than the first was? Wouldn't it be even, I mean, you know, from one way of reading it, the second referendum would have made the first look like a walk in the park in terms of civility. I mean, that claim was always made by people who didn't want a second referendum. And my answer to that would be to say that the way in which the referendum is conducted is the responsibility of the people who conduct it. So so if they would say, well, we're going to play really dirty if we, if we do this, then that is, that was their responsibility, and that was down, that was down to them. But I think the second thing is that I don't think that that it wouldn't have been a rerun. I mean, again, the, the book is not an advocacy, by the way. For no, no, absolutely. And, and I criticise a lot of Remainers. I think the way that Remainers clung on to this notion of oh, well, the first one was an advisory referendum. It was a ridiculous yeah. rabbit hole to go down. But a second referendum would have been substantively different, in as much as 
it would have been, of course, we didn't have the trade agreement, but it would have been, we, you know, we, we, we would have known what the withdrawal agreement was, which at that stage would have been Theresa May's withdrawal agreement. Mm -hmm. we, would have, we would have known that. So it would have been a better informed one. But actually, if there's an advocacy in the book, it's less about second referendum than saying that we really, the, the, the political, the politic, really, really missed the opportunities in the elections of 2017 and 19, but especially 2017, to actually have a serious discussion about Brexit, which mm. is extraordinary. But if you remember that 2017 yep. campaign, neither Labour nor the Tory party really wanted to talk in detail about Brexit mm -hmm. at all. Listen, listeners, if you can bear with us for a couple of minutes, we're going to go to one of our famous commercial breaks and we'll be back with Chris in a few seconds time. Hello there. I'm Katie Hayward, Senior Fellow for UK and a Changing Europe, specialising in Northern Ireland and Brexit, based at Queen's University in Belfast. Apologies for interrupting, but seeing as you're here, I thought you might be interested in signing up to our newsletter, which is now weekly. You can keep up to speed by going to our website, www ukandeu.ac.uk. See you there. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. You're a professor of organisation studies. Can you just tell us what that is? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I ought to have an answer to that after 30 <laughs> years of kind of professing it. Well, in principle, it is the study of organisations in all of their different forms, but primarily you know, business organisations in terms of how they uh, structure themselves, in terms of how they staff and resource themselves, in terms of how they market themselves. But what is germane in relation to that subject, Brexit and me, is it's also about the political and regulatory environment in which organisations operate. Most of the things that I've been done have been to do with that kind of interface between politics and business or politics. Okay. And I think that that actually, by accident, has sort of lent itself quite well to Brexit, yeah. because it is such a kind of hydra-headed thing. And I think that the fact that I was working in this kind of area, which is economics is a bit relevant, and politics is a bit relevant, law is a bit relevant, business is relevant. Yeah. That's the kind of the connection. Which kind of brings us back to blame and betrayal, because one of the really interesting things you say about this constant search for people to blame and for betrayals to unearth, you say the process couldn't be undertaken within the normal parameters of policy delivery, even contentious policy delivery. So you're saying in a way that the process was, was shaped by the blame and betrayal narrative. Yes, I think that's right. And I think that if, if we think about this at the kind of the level of the civil service, that there are lots of, first of all, the right from the beginning, before anything really had happened very much, the civil service was being fingered as being, I think Theresa May wrote something in the, in the Daily Telegraph, or some of the Telegraph, not long after the referendum, in which the civil service was kind of identified as a block you know, because of, of being understood to be pro-Remain. So it was there, that was there kind of a, you know, early on. But then I think you can see a lot of the way through in, in the process that civil servants were being, the, the advice that they were given, that they were giving, was being filtered through the lens of whether they were Remainers or Brexiters yeah. or not, with the assumption that they would be likely to be kind of pro-Remain. Pro so, so, so when you get into these kind of quite ridiculous kind of contortions about alternative arrangements for the Irish border that don't actually kind of exist, mm. you know, if, if, if you're a civil servant and you say... And you and you and you're saying that in terms to ministers, but then it's but then that can't be true because we don't want it to be true. I mean, this is not unique to Brexit. Are there any circumstances under which you might be led to concede that Brexit was a tremendous success? No, because the short answer. I mean, you know, I mean, I think it's, I think it's it's already been 
a failure. I don't, you know, I'm not sure what could happen now that would change my well, country. I mean, hypothetically, that. let's just say we end up in a country where satisfaction with democracy increases, which is one of the kind of things that Brexiters were talking about having self-government, where perhaps inequality decreases because levelling up actually happens, where to some extent, at least, the British economy defies some of the predictions and actually does relatively well despite gravity. What I would say to that is, you know, one of the things that I need to do is to lose weight. So if I take a, a machete to my inflated stomach and hack it off and um, cause myself all kind of misery, and then you invite me to say, but do you now think that that was successful, given the fact that you have managed to shed three stone, then I think it would be a very perverse kind of way of, of judging a decision, wouldn't it? So I would say, in other words, I would say, if we wanted to have those things like reducing inequality, blah, 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 we didn't need Brexit to do it. But maybe then, actually, the flaw lies with pre-referendum politics as much as with the referendum itself. That is to say, if that's what it takes, it's a bit of an indictment of the system that was there beforehand. The word if there is doing an enormous amount yeah, of perhaps. work. Yeah. You know, OK, I mean, look, if, if, if we do get to kind of, you know, sort of five years out or something like that, and something, as you say, has like that has kind of transpired, then I'm not, it feels so kind of hypothetical, I don't really know how to engage it. it we'll invite you back in five years, incidentally. <laughs> I just want to say, though, for your listeners, that it, the book is intentionally, it is not meant to be a relitigation of the case for and against Brexit. I mean, inevitably, it, it has implications for that. But I did also want to do in the book something which was just more analytical, in a sense, about, it's not an academic book, but still analytical in the sense of trying to tell, kind of tell, tell the story of what happened. Because I think one of the things about it is, well, two things actually, one is that there's actually quite a lot of drama in that story. So even whether one whether one was happy or not about Brexit, there was something just hugely fascinating about it, right? Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the processes and, and, and the events and, and so on. And the second thing I think is that already it's become quite easy to kind of forget things which, which happened. And again, you know, as I was kind of writing the book, and I really hadn't expected this until I started writing it, how often this issue about sequencing and the relationship between the exit agreement and the future terms agreement how often they were kind of confused in the course of the process and and i, I and it wasn't really until i went back and reconstructed it because yeah. obviously you know the blog would be very fragmentary that i hope that i came to realize how often that kept recurring and recurring and recurring so i think there's like a kind of a value and that's why i kind of i kind of hope you know which, which may be unlikely but i kind of hope that people who are pro leave or pro brexit might get something out of the book as well you know oh, there they will i'm sure they will just turning to the blog i think i read somewhere that it had been read over four million times i mean were you surprised by how well the blog did in fact it's, it's a lot more than that well it's, it's almost six million wow um, yes is the answer to that i mean when i started it i kind of i mean blogs are ten a penny and, and you know it's very difficult to kind of get an audience and um uh, and of course also in terms of sort of brexit commentary there was a you know huge amount of it around yeah. not, not least to say the stuff that's come you know the stuff that comes out of out of uk and changing europe and, and, and other think tanks and, and so on. Mm. But it took off partly just as a matter of, of luck. And it, these, those, those things are always luck. But I think that what, why quite a lot of people like it, I think it is because it has that kind of character of synthesising what's sort of going on. And the fact that, again, it, it tries anyway to sort of take in the economics and the politics and the kind of the cultural psychology and, and those kinds of things and to, and to wrap them into one kind of narrative, which, I mean, obviously has its downsides as well. It's, it's quite a kind of jack-of-all-trades kind of thing. And it's beautifully written, which makes it easy and pleasurable to read. But do you think it's important that social scientists speak beyond the academy? Yeah, maybe not always in terms of in the very early part of my academic career, I probably was more 
in terms of establishing myself as yeah, an academic. Yeah. But, but subsequently, yeah, I mean, one of the things which, which actually indirectly led to the Brexit stuff, a short book for students is called A Very Short, Fairly Interesting and Reasonably Cheap Book About Studying Organisation. And out of that, I, I actually did a blog, but on which I found myself increasingly writing about Brexit and its impact in relationship to organisations. And that was when I launched the spin-off. So the Brexit blog is a spin-off from the blog that goes with the organisation's book. So they kind of they together. But I mean, to speak to your more uh, or to your wider point, I mean, I absolutely think that about social science. Your centre, which is also this kind of hub for, you know, for people who are just fantastic examples of that public engagement, Katie Hayward. Uh, but what I think is also quite interesting is that in terms of the Brexit debate, People like me who work in, in business and management schools have not really been heard very much, I would say. There's a, I mean, one important exception who you will know because he's associated with the centre is David Bailey. There are things about supply chains and regulation and so on, which, you know, are still, I would say, very little understood yeah. in relation to, you know, in relation to Brexit. And so I actually also feel that, that as somebody who works in a kind of a business school that I also wanted to communicate, as you probably know better than, than, than I do. I mean, it, it has its difficulties. And I don't just mean by that the kind of the insults. And the, I mean, the stuff that I write is quite analytical in tone, but I still get people saying, I still used to get messages saying I should be hanged because I was a traitor and, you know, all this kind of, it's a bit of an illusion that you can have very much voice. And so when you kind of like say, oh, well, there's been 6 million people who read the blog and, you know, when it been read by a thousand people i would th think you know bloody hell six million but then you think to yourself oh, actually what does, what does that really boil down to six million well in terms of uh, you know because that's reads it's not readers you know so you think yeah well it would be good but only if it was 10 million and it, that's like the trap of like the twitter trap isn't it it's like yeah. you start on twitter and you and you and you don't have any followers you have a thousand followers you think wow you know then you have ten thousand you think well thousands nothing but ten thousand is nothing if i had a hundred thousand well that yeah. would, if you have a million people following you on Twitter, you kind of think yeah but actually it's not really there's there's something about this which is a bit like the kind of myth of sisyphus isn't it or something but it is an incentive structure <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Well, listen, I mean, I do hope we can have you back sometime. But for the moment, Chris, thank you ever so much. It's been an absolute treat. Thank you. Excellent.